Well, if you're new with us, we've been in a series over the hope of heaven. And um, as always, as I'm thinking about heaven, I'm reminded of a joke um, and, uh, or a story, I guess you would say. Um, and it was about uh, two, two gentlemen that find themselves upon their death uh, at the doors of heaven. And so there they are before the pearly gates and Peter's there. And one of these guys was a pastor and the other one was a congressman. And they happen to arrive at the same time at which Peter looks at the pastor and he says, hey, listen, we've got a humble abode for you. And uh, it's a nice little quaint place. If you're going to go down the road just a bit, you're going to take a left and about three houses over, there's just a quaint little spot for you. You're going to love it. It's, it's perfectly fitted for you, and, and you can go anytime you're ready. Uh, at the same time, after he addresses the pastor, he then goes uh, to the congressman. He goes, now listen, we have something spectacular for you. He goes, uh, you're going to go, uh, it's going to be a few miles out, but up on the hill, there's going to be a lofty abode. It's a big house. It is decked out. It's incredible view. Back behind it, there's going to be a, an incredible you know, lake, and uh, there's so many wonderful things for you to enjoy. In which after Peter explains this to the congressman, the pastor says, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second, this isn't fair. How is he going to get all these things, and I'm just getting this little quaint abode right up the road? He goes, listen, pastor, we have, we have a lot of pastors here. There are a dime a dozen, but this is the first congressman that we've ever had. I couldn't hardly just I couldn't hardly not do that this week. I know it's not right, is it? Uh, but as we continue uh, week four of this series, the hope of heaven, today we're going to address the imperishable. Um, over the course of the ha- handful of weeks, we've addressed a, a myriad of things. We started in week one, and we just talked about heaven and where it is and uh, what it will be, and then we uh, began to address from there. Um, what heaven is today and how it's different than the heaven that we will eventually experience in the new heaven and the new earth. And so last week, as we talked about the new heaven and the new earth, it brought up, well, what's it going to be like when we're there and what will we have in terms of our bodies? Will it be the same body we have? Uh, If we're going to have a new glorified body, what will it look like? And so today we're going to address the whole idea of a new body. What's it going to look like? And uh, today it's going to be rather lengthy in reading. We're going to bounce around from several different texts. But today I'm confident that you'll be able to walk out of here and from the scriptures have a pretty good idea of what the imperishable body will look like. And so today we're going to begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That's in the New Testament. Um, You've got, basically in the New Testament, you're going to have five books put together. They're all T's. You've got First and Second Timothy. If you're kind of there, then you're going to go uh, from there to First and Second Thessalonians. And then at the very end of that, you've got a little book written to a pastor named Titus. If you're Titus, you need to go left. If you're Timothy, you need to go right. And when you get to First Thessalonians chapter 4, there's going to be a heading, particularly probably in your Bible, that just talks about the coming of the Lord. And the coming of the Lord is when Christ comes back. And so we are awaiting, as believers in Christ, a moment that we would see depicted in Revelation chapter 19, where Christ comes back on a white horse. And as we wait for that, Paul is addressing it with the church of Thessalonica as something that he believes is is imminent, something that he believes that could potentially happen in his lifetime. Now, we know that the church has been waiting now for a couple thousand years. And so as a result of that, we too could live with the expectation that the appearing of Christ is just around the corner. 
And so with expectation, we can read this text believing that this could potentially happen in our own lifetimes. And I happen to believe that it could easily happen in our lifetimes. And I think if you are a a scholar of the end times, or even more than that, you're paying attention to what's happening in the world, we could see the puzzle pieces coming together. And so this is a very relative text as Paul addresses the church of Thessalonica. He says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and following. He says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He goes, listen, I don't want you to be surprised at the fact that there are people who have died, fallen asleep. He goes, I also don't want you to grieve as if you'll never see them again. So as believers in Christ, we take heed as to what Paul said to the church of Corinth, that if we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. As a result of that, we believe that we'll be with God, we'll also be with others that we love. And so Paul says, listen, we don't, we don't grieve as if we have no hope. We don't grieve as if there's no expectation of eternal life. We don't grieve as if there's no expectation of a reuniting of our relationship with God. We don't grieve the way that others might grieve. We grieve with hope, with expectation. Verse 14, he goes on, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Our hope is that Christ died was buried on the third day, rose again. So this is an Easter message. We look forward to eternal life because of what Christ did in his life. But more importantly, what Christ did in his death. As he was resurrected on the third day, he goes on and says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he says, Those who have died have hope, and those who are alive have hope. Those who have died will be reunited with God, and those who are alive will be united with God. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, those who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. Now the word there, caught up in the Greek, is the word that we talked about in week one, which is the Greek word herpazo, which literally means to caught up, to be caught up. Or it's the word that we think of rapture. It's where we get it from. And so if you believe that there's going to be the rapture of the church, which is what Paul is talking about here to the church of Thessalonica, what he's saying is there's going to be a moment where Christ comes, And as he comes, he goes, he's going to begin with the dead in Christ. Meaning, when we die, our physical bodies go to the earth. They came from dust, and to dust they'll return. As a result of that, when our bodies are with the ground, our souls, our spirits are united with Christ. Now, in this intermediate, where we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, we're also waiting for a new body a new resurrected body in which we go, well, when did the new body come? Well, it apparently comes for the dead in Christ when they meet the Lord at the rapture. Now, you may disagree on when the rapture occurs. In this particular message, it's not important as to when you believe the rapture will occur. The question is, is do you believe that Christ is coming back? If he's coming back, then what will he do? He'll begin with the dead in Christ, meaning those whose bodies have decayed, whose bones have drifted into the ocean, those who were killed in wars or uh, those who or 
killed in wrecks or those whose bodies have never been found, God will in that moment take and resurrect all the molecules that might be missing and he'll give them a new glorified body. And he'll not just start with them, but then it'll be those who are alive in Christ that will be also with the Lord. Verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, so as a result of knowing that God is coming back through his son Jesus, and you'll be reunited with him with a new glorified body, hey, encourage one another with these things and with these words. Now, why? The encouragement is, is that we will not merely be disembodied spirits, but that we'll actually be with Christ. R.A. Torrey says it this way. He says, We will not be disembodied spirits in the world to come, but we'll be redeemed spirits in redeemed bodies and redeemed universe. So though our bodies might be broken down, you might have pains and ailments and challenges getting out of bed. Anybody have that this morning? Yes? Uh, I was hobbling around at 3 a.m. last last night. I was like, man, I'm so thirsty. And then I could just feel the pain of my body as I'm getting older. There's, There's hope for a renewed and a new redeemed body. It's coming. Paul says this, the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about this whole idea. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If not, I'll put it on the screen. You can make a note and go back and check it out. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 40 through 45. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, which is important to note There's one that's made for earth that is prone to disease, hardship, pain, toil, labor, strife, enmity, bitterness, jealousy, anger, rage, murder, all those things. That's the earthly body. He goes, there's the heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. They're totally different. He goes on and says this in verse 41. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory, meaning they're different. The moon and the sun are not the same, just as they're not the same and the stars aren't the same. Our bodies, one that's heavenly and one that's earthly, are not the same. You got the point? He goes on and he says, okay, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now, what's the resurrection of the dead? It's when the dead in Christ meet Christ when he comes. Y'all got that? Tracking me? Everybody say capiche. Good. And so he says this in verse 42. So is with the resurrection of dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So what you got with your earthly body is, is perishable. It's fleeting. It's going to go away. But what you'll get with the new body is imperishable. 43, one is sown in dishonor, the other one's raised in glory. Your earthly body is sown in weakness, but it'll be raised in power. One is sown as a natural body, one will be raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So here's what he says. He goes, in Adam, we all die. Why? Because we're all prone to sin. And sin brings a myriad of consequences, right? One of those, Paul says, we carry around this body of death. Meaning that our body is going to go back to the dust in which it came from. 
But there is another body in which God will give us when Christ returns that is imperishable. It's no longer natural, it's supernatural. It's no longer disgraced, it's actually a body of grace, full of power, full of glory, full of what God desires for us to have, which is no longer perishable, but imperishable. And so as a result of that, here's what you and I need to know. Point number one, one day, good news, we will receive a new glorified body. So one day, you're going to get a new glorified body. And so the question you got to ask yourself is, okay, well, what is that even going to look like? Well, look down in 1 Corinthians 15, look, go a few verses down to verse 49. Look what he says. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, which is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we no longer will bear this idea of Adam, but we'll, we'll now bear the idea of Christ and his glorified state. And so point number two is not only will we receive a glorified body, but you're also going to what? Resemble the resurrected body of Christ. So you might go, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, Paul addresses that too. And it's kind of tucked in, but uh, in Philippians chapter three, I want you to see a passage. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there real quickly. In Philippians chapter three, Paul is talking about, um, in many ways, what it looks like to be with Christ. And in verse 10, he says this. He says, I desire that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I might share in his sufferings. And then he says, becoming like him in his death. But verse 11, this is key. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I have a desire to be with Christ. I have a desire to be united with him. And his expectation is, is that it would be from the resurrection of the dead. So Paul says, if I die, my spirit's with the Lord and my body awaits the resurrection of the dead. But keep on going. He says, he says this right after that. He goes, not that I've already obtained it. I press on for what's ahead, forgetting what's behind. I'll look forward. But then you get down to verse 20 and he goes, and my citizenship is in heaven. Look what he says. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will key transform. The idea there and transform in the Greek is the idea of metamorphosis. It's the idea to take one thing that's in a cocoon and make it all new. So as a result of that, that transformation, he goes, I'm gonna, he's going to take our lowly body and he's going to be like his glorious body. Paul describes it one way to the church of Philippi and another to Corinth. In Corinth, he says he's going to take what's in what's perishable and make it imperishable. Here, he's going to take what's lowly and he's going to make it a new glorious body. And then he says this, and it's going to be by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So you can take heart that the glorified body you will have will resemble the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the beloved disciple, John, he says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. You don't have to turn there, but look what he says. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So he goes, what we have now is not what we will have. He goes on and he says this, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. 
And then not only that, because we shall see him as he is. So not only will we see Christ, we will be like Christ. Now, you might ask, well, what does that mean? And I, th- I think it means a myriad of things. But one of the most basic essential things that it means is not, not only will we see him, and not only will he reveal himself to us, but we will be like him in this very most basic state, and that is that you'll have a glorious new body that is built to live forever. Free of sin, free of the, the challenges of this world, it'll be a glorified body made possible because of Christ and the resurrection and made like the body of Christ's resurrection. And so that's the hope we have. C.H. Spurgeon says this. He says, this will be the greatest glory of heaven to know God, to know Jesus more intimately and wonderfully than we ever could on earth. It is the chief blessing of heaven, the cream of heaven, the heaven of heaven, that the saints shall there see Jesus. As we addressed in week one, heaven is heaven, not merely because you and I get a new body. Heaven is not heaven merely because we get to enjoy the fellowship of others. Heaven is heaven because we see the Christ. And the Christ, the one who redeems us into a glorious state, is there. And heaven is only heaven because of God and his Son and because of the Holy Spirit. So as a result of that, the question you got to ask yourself is, okay, if we're going to get a new body... And that new body is going to be like the body of Christ. Then point number three is, how do we know what a body entails? Well, here it is. What we know about a glorified body is found in Jesus Christ. So you might ask the question, well, how do I learn that? Well, here's what you have to do. You have to take Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then anything that happened after the resurrection of Christ is in a new glorious body. And so then you can start studying that. And there's a great text to study. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20. The entire chapter is filled with instances of Jesus in a new glorified body. And there's so many answers to our questions here in this one chapter alone. But I want you to look at it in John chapter 20. If you remember in verses 11 and 18, uh, Jesus is in the garden and he appears to Mary Magdalene. While we won't read this, you remember Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him at first. Matter of fact, she believes he might have been the gardener. So she had looked into the tomb, seen angels, then sees this guy who she presumes to believe is the gardener, ask him, hey, what have you done with the body of Jesus? Hey, tell me, take, take me to him so I can, can, can have it. I would love to see the body of Jesus. And so there's fear that maybe something's happened, he's been stolen, and to which then she looks upon him and he looks at her and says, Mary, to which then she replies, Rabbanai. She recognizes him. Now, what's interesting is, is that she didn't recognize him completely at first. But pay attention. She won't be the only one who struggles to recognize him completely at first. Matter of fact, if you continue on, Mary says that she's seen the Lord. She runs and she tells all the disciples who, by the way, have hidden themselves in a locked room. Fear of the Jews. It says this in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that same day, which was, by the way, the first day of the week. So it's a Sunday after his death. You've, you've got the first day of the week, a Sunday, in which he appears to Mary later that evening. He finds the disciples, which you see in verse 19, 
are huddled in a place where the doors were, were locked. And the disciples were there for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now you're reading this, and I'm not sure if you had like an all-hall moment just now or you've caught this, but this is what happened. The disciples are afraid that the body of Jesus is gone. Um, They're hiding in a room by themselves. Mary shows up. They're locked in a specific house, a place in which there is a door and a physical lock. And Jesus all of a sudden appears. Like you don't notice that in the Greek, but the Greek word says that the disciples wet themselves. And the reason why is because you don't have people that just appear. Like you're not catching it. Like Jesus entered into a locked house without opening a door. So in his new glorified body, he just appears. And apparently if you're going to appear and scare somebody, it's appropriate to say, peace be with you. (laughs) So siblings, like, you know, I mean, I guess that's the best way to stay out of trouble. You're going to scare your sister. That's fine. Boom. Peace be with you. Like whatever, like just, that's what he does. Now look at the response. When they had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So at first, they see him and he appears just going through the wall, which you got to ask the question, okay, in our new glorified body, do we have the ability to teleport? Jesus did. It might be a stretch to say we do, but we know for sure that he was able to move from one physical location to the other without unlocking a door. Um, That would be super cool. I'm not going to promise you that because I can't say definitively that that's possible, but it was possible for Christ in his new resurrected body. And it could have been simply because he is the Christ and God. That could certainly be the case. And we may be limited in that way, but it's an interesting thing to note. Now, what's interesting is when he shows up to the disciples, there is one of the disciples who is not there. Do y'all remember his name? Thomas. Thomas is not there. Thomas is also the very one who doubted Jesus in John chapter 14 when he says, I'm going away, and if I go away and prepare a place for you, you need to know, I'll come back and receive it unto myself. When Thomas goes, hey, Jesus, that doesn't even make sense. How do we know unless you tell us where you're going? Thomas has a little bit of a problem with the pessimistic spirit, and which they go, and it says in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, he was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples say, hey, tell him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, and the mark for the nails, and place my finger into the mark for the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So they tell him, hey, this is what's happened. Jesus just showed up. Man, he came, like, this is the craziest thing, Thomas. He just showed up. Didn't even unlock the door. The door was locked, and he just showed up, and he was like, peace be with you. And, and Tom's like, I don't believe it. Like, this is too far-fetched. It's, it's like, it's hocus-pocus. Like, quit, quit telling me that stuff. I need to believe it, and the only way I believe it is if I see it and I touch it. And which, if you look, verse 26 Jesus knows, and eight days later, he shows up, verse 26. And his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. So where were they inside? They were inside of this house again. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Boom, peace be with you. He says, peace be with you. Why does he do that? And then look what the response was. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And I'm like, Well, because you just keep showing up like that. Like, that's troubling. Stop doing that. 
And then he says, why do doubts arise in your hearts? They were troubled not merely because Jesus came through walls. They were troubled because of all that they've been through. And then he says this, verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Um, He says this, he says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but what? Believe, believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, what's important to note about this is that he says, look, I'm not merely some spiritual being. Like, touch me. Like, here's my hands. Here's my side. Like, physically touch me. Now, Luke, you don't have to turn there, but Luke gives another gospel account of this same story. And I love how he writes it. In Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 39, this is what Luke says beginning in verse 36. And I'll put it for you up on the screen so you can see it. But he says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Consistent story, right? Then he says, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a, what? Okay, hold on, let's try that one more time. Y'all see it up on the screen? And they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And then Luke says, Jesus then said, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he answers the question, is Jesus in the resurrected state a spiritual being? No, he's a physical one. Jesus says, here I am. Touch me. Feel the marks on my hands. Feel the the piercing in my side. Jesus says, a a body is different than a spirit. For a spirit is not something you can touch. And so come, I'm tangible. So what do you know about your new resurrected glorified body? It's going to be tangible. It's going to be a physical body. It's not going to be a disembodied spirit. It's going to be a physical body. Now, what is interesting to note here, and I'm not sure if you've caught this, but it is interesting to note that when people saw Jesus, they were a little startled, a little bit frightened. Why? Because there was something about his appearance that looked slightly different. If you remember Mary in the garden in John chapter 20, she looks upon him and she doesn't know that it's him initially. You can see that in multiple occasions that initially there's something different about him in his new resurrected body that is slightly altered to a degree. Maybe his hair is parted a different way. I I don't know. Like the reality is, is there's something different. And what it seems to be is there's an essence or an aura that in some ways is new. And at first, in some ways might look somewhat angelic. Matter of fact, you see this continue on in John chapter 21. If you just were to flip over, if you're still in John chapter 20, I want you to see, it's a rather lengthy text, but I want you to see this this moment where Jesus appears to the disciples. They're out fishing, and just as day was breaking, verse 4, it says that Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? 
In which they answered him, no. And he said to them, well, hey, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So initially they see Jesus on the shore. They don't know that it's him. He says, hey, take your net, throw it on the other side, in which they bring in a large load of fish. Verse 7, and that that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore then said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now the disciple that Jesus loves is the very one who's writing this book. His name's John. So John inconspicuously says, hey, by the way, the one that Jesus loves, recognized who it was, said to Peter, hey, I'm, I'm the one that Jesus loves the most, but hey, that's the Lord. In which, look at Peter's response. When Simon Peter heard there was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. So here it is. He's a He's a redneck East Texas fisherman, okay? And he's out fishing. He doesn't have many clothes on because he's enjoying the, the work day. And as a result, he hears this Jesus. He takes his cloak on, puts it on, jumps into the sea, and he swims about 300 foot to see Jesus on the shore. Matter of fact, if you continue on, it says this in verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. Now look at verse 9. When they got... Out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, look at it, who are you? So there's something different about his appearance, although they know and have already declared it's the Lord. They, they wouldn't dare ask him, hey, who are you? Why? Because they knew at the end of that verse that it was the Lord. So in the new glorified body, though it's a physical body, will it look slightly different? I presume to believe that it will. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we know he's appeared to them twice in a room in which he said, peace be with you. This one, he finds them on the seashore and there he has breakfast prepared, which there are many things that I think that we can learn here. And I think the first one is just simply this, as we think about the new glorified body, if it's gonna be like the body of Jesus, what are a few things that we can learn? One is there will be a great continuity between this life and the next life, okay? There will be a continuity between this life and the next life. Think about this. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, he did not say, hey, gentlemen, um, you guys look familiar, he didn't go to Thomas and say, hey, will you remind me real quickly of your name? He didn't say to Mary in the garden, uh, ma'am, could, could you just remind me a little bit about yourself? It seems like I knew you in my former life. Do you see that? Which differs quite a bit from Hinduism and other beliefs that you and I are re reincarnated into something entirely different. Listen, we, we don't become something different. Do we, do we take on a change? Absolutely. But what we do is we simply move from what is perishable to what's imperishable. We move from what is sin-felt and wretched to something that is entirely made new. As a result of that, we're free from sin, but yet we have this continuity from one life to the next to which we would enjoy relationships with one another. 
And not only do we enjoy relationships, but it certainly means that there's such a continuity that we would recognize even those who come before us. In week one, we talked not only about heaven being a real place, but there being real people there. And we see just in the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John, they all go up with, with Jesus onto the mountain. They see what seems to be Moses and Elijah. The question you got to ask yourself is, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? They'd never met Moses and Elijah. There's a continuity that happens. I would say such a large conti- continuity that you have to consider this. What about your own name? Do you take on a new name? Well, Jesus never gave new names. He didn't give a new name to, yes, he did give new names in the scripture some, obviously from Abram to Abraham and certainly from Jacob to Israel. But the reality is, is for us, it seems to be there's such a continuity that as the disciples would recognize Moses and Elijah and just as Jesus would recognize Mary and Peter and John and Thomas and all these situations, it seems to be that we could believe that our continuity is the same. Think about this. When your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what name is written down? I presume to believe it's your name, my name. And so as a result of that, we are continually giving respect to the very names that we were given by our parents or our grandparents upon our birth. And so there's a continuity that continues. The second thing, though, is that the new heaven will be built around communion with God and with others, but without the curse. So let me put it for you as you see it. So there it is. The next life, our new life to come, these transformed bodies don't merely exist so you'll have a new body. They exist so that you commune with God just as Adam and Eve did before sin. And you'll enjoy a multitude of things, communion with others. The only difference is the communion with others will be free of sin. Think about all the estranged or broken relationships, the hardships, the death, the pain, the resentment, the bitterness. All the things that have fallen apart in this life will be gone. And so what will you have that remains? You'll have a glorious bliss of a communal relationship with God and with others. And what will you enjoy? You'll enjoy all that God has. Matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards says this, there are no inhabitants of that blessed world that will ever be grieved with the thought that they are slighted by those that they love or that their love is not fully and fondly returned. You won't get to heaven and go, you know what, I don't think they liked me. You know, that didn't go as well as I thought it would go. All of those former things have gone. And as you approach heaven in a new glorified body, you will have fellowship with God and fellowship with others that is entirely pure and free of sin and pain and the former things that have passed away. And not only will you enjoy communion, but friends, communion means that you'll live and eat and drink. Matter of fact, do you remember when Jesus said, hey, come boys and see me on the shore? What did he have there? He had a charcoal grill, fire, I like grill, okay? Um, charcoal fire, he had fish and he had bread. And what did he say? He said, come and eat breakfast with me. Friends, in the new heaven and the new earth, you can take to bank that one of the reasons you have a physical body that's made new is so that you enjoy the delicacies of life. And listen, you think that you've tasted something good, you've not tasted anything good. Right now, what you have is a watered down version of what is good. 
But everything that you enjoy now will be more fulfilling then. And you won't have to eat, but you can eat. And just as Jesus said to his disciples on that distant shore, hey, come and dine with me. Friends, you need to know that in the new heaven and the new earth, you will enjoy dining together. And there will be glorious food and there will be glorious fellowship and you will be eating together. And so for many of us, it's an incredible thing. Why? Because many of us are foodies, right? And you're like, man, I hope we can eat. Listen, I can say confidently that not only will you be able to eat, but you will enjoy it. Now listen, this might be a stretch, and I know that there's a little bit of an obstacle to overcome, because last week in the new heaven and the new earth, we know there will be no more sea, and three quarters of our earth is made up with sea water, but it doesn't say there will be no more rivers, and so just as Jesus gathered over a charcoal, charcoal fire and some fish, I presume to believe that that's what you'll also experience in the new heaven and new earth. Just as heaven comes and touches the, the earth, I believe that you will come and go freely in the presence of God, commune with others, and I certainly believe, for all of you fishermen here, that you will be able to fish. And I do believe that you'll enjoy that aspect of life. And I believe that you'll have the quality of enjoying food. And just as all of us East Texans know, you catch and you release into hot grease. And so... <laughs> I don't need a charcoal fire. All I need is a a pan of grease. And if I have that, then I can enjoy fellowship. And that, my friends, is something I think we could take to bank. And so it'll be living and eating and enjoying. Matter of fact, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 22. You might not remember this, but when he was dining with his disciples um, on that Passover night before his death, he says this in Luke chapter 22. He says in verse 17, and he takes the cup and we'd given thanks. He says, hey, take this, divide it among yourselves. And then he said this, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is awaiting a meal with us. And he is waiting for the great, revel, uh, the great wedding feast that you see in the book of Revelation. He's waiting for us to be reunited with him in a new glorified body in which we will enjoy all of eternity communing with God, free of the things of old. And we can't wait. And listen, I can just tell you that if you can eat, then I think it's very easy to put together in all that we've seen here in Jesus' new glorified body that you're going to have all your senses. You're going to have sight. You're going to have taste. You're going to have touch. You're going to have laughter and fun. You're going to enjoy heaven more than you enjoy earth now, which is, I think, the reason that Jesus warns his disciples so candidly to not make this our home. But can you imagine the laughter and the love and the celebration of a new heaven and new earth and a new glorified body free of all the hardships and the pain of this life? It'll be wonderful. And as C.S. Lewis says this, just as we will laugh, love fully and laugh richly, okay? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, and there was greeting and kissing and handshaking and old jokes revive. And you've got no idea how good an old joke sounds when you take it out again after a rest of five or 600 years. <laughs> what will be is still to come. And though it hasn't happened yet, we can take the bank that if God said it, it will happen. Why? Because just as he told the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah said, hey, listen, you can look for Messiah, and you'll find him. And he'll be a lamb led to the slaughter. Just as Micah said, hey, you'll find him in the town of Bethlehem. As you see the prophets of old declare the things that God would do, 
as God fulfilled his son when he came to Bethlehem, as he was lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, as he was found in the city of David, the town of Bethlehem. Listen, if God can do all those things, you can take the bank that what he has said in this particular subject is also true. And we look forward to that day and we press on in the midst of a broken world, desiring something entirely made new. And so are there more pains to endure? Are there more hardships? Are we subject to more? Yes. But if we'll keep our eyes set on the distant hill towards the east, which is that direction, then you'll know that the coming of the Lord is soon. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then us who are still alive will be with him. And we will have new bodies waiting on a new glorious kingdom and the fulfillment of all things new. Until then, friends, press on. Be encouraged. Don't give up. And as Paul says in Colossians 3, set your eyes for things above. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in and through Christ Jesus. And Lord, just as he created the first heaven and the first earth, Lord, we can take the bank that he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And Lord, just as in the first heaven and the first earth, as it was corrupted in Adam, Lord, we can, we can be confident that the new heaven and the new earth will be solidified in Christ. So, Lord, no longer will we bear the consequences of our former life. We will enjoy the fruitfulness of Christ and his resurrection on the third day. And, Lord, we look forward to a new glorious and redemptive purpose in our life. Lord, we thank you that one day we can put off what is natural for something that is supernatural. Lord, we can finally let go of these lowly bodies for something that is far more grand and glorious and spectacular. Lord, until then... Lord, until we see you face to face and we dine with you and dine with others free of sin and free of pain, Lord, would you give us strength through your spirit? Lord, would you enable us to make it through the difficulties of life? And Lord, I know there are friends right here sitting in this room who are struggling because death oftentimes brings a sting that is so deep. But Father, in the midst of that sting, Lord, would you help us to remind ourselves, just as Paul reminded the church of Thessalonica, we don't grieve as if we have no hope. Because we can take the bank that the friends and the fathers and the mothers and the uncles and the aunts that we knew will be there. And not only will they be there, but Lord, we'll know them and they'll know us and we'll enjoy fellowship. But more than that, you'll be there and your son will be our king and he'll be our light and he'll be our guide. And Lord, we await and long for the new glorious kingdom. Until then, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.